Ecclesiastes chapter 10 this morning. As you head in your Bibles, just remind you this evening is another time for you to take advantage of being with your friends who need the Lord Jesus or with your families. Um, on major holiday weekends, we allow the evening service uh, to be replaced with those necessary activities and opportunities. So I know you'll look forward to that uh, this evening. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and 11 was read for us earlier, and as stated before, the last time we were together, chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12 are four chapters of conclusion of this book of wisdom, and we've been enjoying this book for a year, and we'll be concluding it not this time, but the next time that we meet together um, and study Solomon's inspired words of wisdom together. We Continue on in chapter 10, studying what wisdom has to say in relationship to enduring through uh, the margin of mystery that life is to us on a regular basis. I've highlighted for you often, and we'll do it again in this sermon this morning, a New Testament passage that really summarizes Solomon's heart for our time, and that's 1 Peter 4.19. We need to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while we continue to do good things. For us, there's things that we may never be able to understand, but God understands. What's our responsibility in the meantime? Wisdom would just have us remain active. Active in doing many things that Solomon's outlined for us, already and that we'll review again this morning both in our text and in the new testament so we're going to highlight for you these wisdom principles in chapter 10 and 11 as they've already been read for you that help us endure through not just the margin of mystery in our life but also various stages of our lives beginning in chapter 11 so what do we learn here in the first three verses of chapter 10 that have been read for us what we learn very simply is that we should never underestimate the impact or the influence of foolishness we should never underestimate the impact or the influence of foolishness dead flies make a perfumes perfumers oil stink so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor we find out from these phrases that Unfortunately, because of our fallen nature, sometimes foolishness is easy to remember than righteousness. Solomon says here that one small little insect can destroy much work that's put into something valuable. I can remember in the early days of dating my wife, we drove down to Kentucky to see her grandparents, and he harvested honey. We went out back, and I've shared this story with you before. Um, they called him Paul Taylor, so Paul took me out back, and he says, we're going to get some honey. And um, in that part of the country, they don't use protective gear. So we went out back, and, and uh, he had me reach inside and, and, and grab some honeycomb and stuff it in a jar, and uh, by some act of God's grace, I did not get stung one time. 
And we came in the kitchen, and I thought we were going to go through a process of purifying this honey and so forth. And, and we got into the kitchen, and Paul says, drink it. <laughs> I was just looking at the glass jar, still had sticky hands, and I had stuffed this honeycomb, and there was remnants of bees <laughs> in the honeycomb. And he just said, drink it. It always tastes best when you just drink it right out of the hive. That insect part bothered me. <laughs> but it was Paul Taylor. It's in the hills of Kentucky. And you just did what Paul Taylor told you to do. And so I drank it. I felt like John the Baptist, I suppose. <laughs> I was just missing the Campbell hair clothes and the long beard. And uh, I drank it like a wild man. That one little insect part or two or three or four seemed to me to destroy the whole of the glorious taste of that honey and Solomon says here that foolishness is just like that much time could be invested in righteousness and in doing righteous and good things but he says here and we continue in this conclusion of this wisdom um, don't ever forget for some reason one act of foolishness can often outlive a lifestyle of righteousness. Verses 2 and 3 is not a prophetic political statement at all. He says here, a wise man's heart directs him to the right, but the foolish man directs his heart to the left. It's not a political statement, but a simple reminder to utilize and to really follow wise souls while you have them. Where verse 3 says, even when a fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he's a fool. There are times in our lives when foolishness will reign, not just through us, but around us. And we'll realize that there really are few wise souls left to follow. Wisdom may never dominate our culture like folly can, but follow wisdom. I think that's why Paul gives us Titus chapter 2. I think that's why we value so much hearing from aged people in our church community like we did during the Bible study hour this morning. How precious are the words of the aged, their counsel to our hearts as younger people. It seems in any culture, Solomon is saying, that wise people are hard to find so adore them while you have them. Adore them while you have them. So we should never underestimate the impact of foolishness. And secondly here in verses 4 through 7, we should always remember that the leadership that we're asked to follow is affected by sin. They're broken and often flawed. I believe these verses, as well as other verses we'll look at this morning in relationship primarily to political leadership or those who have been placed, appointed, or elected that help govern us. But regardless, I believe these principles apply to every form of leadership that God has ordained and placed in our lives. So I want to ask you a question. Do leaders have the tendency to abuse the authority that's granted to them? Certainly. I believe any leader is tempted to do that from time to time. Do they try to live above the law? Do they seem out of touch sometimes with 
daily reality? Of course, we all know the answers to those questions. So where do we find peace when those above us seek to create unrest by living that way? Certainly, I automatically, when I was studying through this, went all over to the, the last verse of our whole book, <laughs> chapter 12 and verse 13. How in the world do I continue to live underneath this type of flawed leadership? And the conclusion is this, that we seek to fear God and continually keep His commandments. There's that 1 Peter 4.19 reality once again. He makes a very interesting statement here in verse number 4. If the ruler's temper rises against you, make sure that you do not abandon your position. Do not abandon your position. Regardless of the type of leadership that is over us and that is demonstrating various degrees of being flawed, we, we cannot neglect our personal spiritual responsibilities because a leader abuses their position of authority. Whether it be political, domestic, academic or vocational don't abandon your position remain spirit filled remain spiritually responsible because as was read earlier verses 5 through 7 teaches us that we may even feel that our leaders aren't even qualified to be in the positions that's been granted to them have you ever been in a situation like that where you've got a leader over you that you may even feel that you're more qualified to fill that role than they, but yet they're there. And we know that they're there by divine appointment, so what do we do at this point? Well, we understand that they're ordained for this hour for you and for me. And we must skillfully remain at our post, at our position, while we endure the rule of foolishness over us. I think it's good for us to remember that most believers in Old Testament history and New Testament times lived under the duress of not-so-great leaders politically and often domestically and certainly 1 Peter chapter 2 vocationally. The glory for a believer is in Scripture not to live well when they have good leadership, God's grace is ultimately demonstrated when we live positionally and dispositionally well under poor leadership. That's really the test of our spiritual character. I find it amazing that as I read through Scripture year after year that we never find believers who endure well underneath flawed leadership ever find themselves victims of their circumstances. They just live. Positionally correct and dispositionally correct. And that's just really all by grace. I think of our political climate today, and I believe that's the direct address of wisdom here. In review, in chapter 10, I think of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where Paul said, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, continue to do good things, right? While we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, gentle showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, 
and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Really what Paul's saying here, the only difference between pagan, flawed leadership in you is grace. That is it. And without grace, where would you be? (laughs) So be careful. Persevere well, regardless of the degree of flawed leadership whose influence you live under. Scripture addresses this skill of wisdom throughout the whole New Testament for us, in our homes, in our churches, in our government, as we've just read. And doing the right thing the right way is wisdom in each situation, but we certainly don't, the local church, go this alone. We've got the Lord, His Word, and we certainly have each other to persevere well in this regard. I was a youth pastor for 15 years, and I've seen hundreds of teens endure similar conflicts with authority in their homes, in their school, and sometimes even in their churches. And now as adults, at their jobs, they're enduring the same things. And my goodness, we all know about flawed individuals in our government, but what keeps some of these now grown-up teenagers from abandoning their post? What keeps these now grown-up teenagers better and not bitter in relationship to the leadership of their past, while others become victims of their circumstances and they run from the faith even? For me, I've come to understand it's how well one personally understands grace, the grace of God, how that grace has first influenced them. And then how it may be able to, and always is able to, influence those over them who are flawed, who maybe even have hurt them. What leader in your present or past was flawed? And you remain bitter with them. What's your responsibility? I've noticed that we often get bitter at flawed leadership and that bitterness actually causes us to dispositionally become actually like the flawed leaders that we disrespect. I found that for years as a youth pastor, right? Kids would be angry at their parents or they'd be angry at their teacher and if they didn't deal with that bitterness and anger with grace, it's unbelievable how easy it is for someone to become just like the leader they disrespect that's flawed if they don't handle it with grace. They might do something differently in their position, but they maintenance the same flawed disposition because they've forgotten how grace has changed them and how grace can omnipotently change those that are flawed over them. I remember groups of children from the same family in 15 years of youth ministry. Some of these children had split homes. Some of them had homes that were on their way to being divided. Some of these children, I would say all these children, had 
tremendous opportunity to grow incredibly bitter towards their parents and their homes. And I could take hours with you and recount by name and situation many, many, many youth where the majority of them became bitter over the leadership that the Lord had placed them other under. But yet there was always seemed to be one child in a family that was a very difficult family to live in that exceeded by grace. The majority found themselves victims of their circumstance, and yet there's one jewel that found their way forward by grace and found their way to still have pity and love and even respect for the position of their flawed parent. Well, they were discouraged by the way their person lived. How does that happen? Why do some get bitter? Why do some stay bitter? And why there's some that don't? I think it's just simply their understanding of grace. What grace has done to transform them personally always gives them hope that grace would transform flawed leadership over them. I think that's an axiom of wisdom, truth throughout all of Scripture. Rendering us never by God's grace to become victims, but to respect positions if the personhood's not respectable. To keep ourselves by grace from bitterness because grace develops compassion and love and weeping for flawed leadership when we truly understand what grace has saved us from being just like them. Certainly we should never under, underestimate the influence of foolishness and we always need to remember how to live under flawed leadership. Verses 8 through 10 teaches us that we should know wisdom doesn't keep us from enduring danger or risk. Wisdom teaches us that we should keep persevering well in life regardless of the degree of risk that life presents. I can remember my mom uh, was deathly afraid of flying, getting in an airplane all of her life. And no matter how many statistics we rifled off at her, she still feared flying. And, and I get that, right? Um, I was the same way. But as my dad got older in ministry, um, there was more demand on his life to travel. So mom had a choice to make, right? I'm going to be with my husband while he worked, or I'm going to remain at home because I fear air travel. And that worked best for my dad. She had to endure the potential risk while she fulfilled her desire to be with her husband. And she didn't even die in an airplane crash. <laughs> she endured the risk. Grace compelled her to endure the potential risk while she fulfilled her desire to shoulder by her husband in ministry. I'm not desiring to minimize the fear of risk of any kind in life. We all endure through this fear somehow, don't we? The reality of wisdom 
still remains though. We should pursue doing right things and not allow the risk to keep us from responsible living. I can remember as a youth pastor taking my first big missions trip to Arizona. That was a fearful thing for me. Our second trip was a large group flying to Western Canada to minister in Calgary. And I remember boarding the plane, and this was well before 9-11, and parents could actually escort their teenagers to the gate and uh, see you off. And uh, I could remember standing there in abject fear of risk. I've got, I'm a young guy with a young wife, no children of my own, and all these parents have surrendered their children's lives to my oversight for two weeks. And it's a long plane flight. But what do you do? Do you let risk paralyze you? Or do you entrust yourself to a faithful creator while you continue to do good things? And obviously wisdom, wisdom's answer to that is, is clear. There's many of you sitting here this morning who felt it to be a risk to try out a new church after you had come from a church that had doctrinally failed or maybe the pastor had morally sinned. It's a fearful thing to try out something new that's obligatory, spiritually obligatory. But you're here this morning by the grace of God, and it was worth the risk, I hope. We can't allow risk to paralyze us from responsible living. I think the illustrations could go on and on, but wisdom's point here is clear. Keep living responsibly, knowing there will always be risk, but always know. In perseverance by grace, spiritual reward is greater than the fear or the reality of risk. So, never underestimate the influence of foolishness. Always understand wisdom's approach to dealing with flawed leadership. Verses 8 through 10 don't allow risk to keep us from living responsibly. And verses 11 to 15 that was read earlier simply teaches us this, that we should always remember that our words have more influence and power than we would ever think. That our words have more influence and power than we would ever think. Verse 11 teaches us what? that skilled speakers can hurt with their words without even being provoked. Verse 12. We have a choice to make before we speak. Verse 12 says, Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. Do your words endear you to others? In your home, in your church, or in your vocation at work? Or do they place you on your own island of mere personal opinion and self-manufactured reality? Destruction comes to the soul who has brought about his own loneliness by the unwise use of words. 
Words should endear us to others, not push us away from others. Certainly in a New Testament context of speaking proper doctrine, if speaking proper doctrine distances us from those who don't enjoy proper doctrine, that's one thing, but that's not his point here. Our words should endear us to others, not push us away from them. Verse 13 would teach us that you don't have to worry about contending with a fool's speech because he'll bring his own shame upon himself. And verse 14 teaches us really that the less you talk, the less you have to apologize. Sometimes it's better to hear and to listen than to speak. The fool speaks in an unguarded way with matters that require cautious speech. I think of James' words in chapter 1, verse 26 in the New Testament where he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart and this man's religion is actually like worthless. Wow. Wow. Verse 15 continues to teach the foolish mouth is really spiritually clueless. Does not even know how to go to a particular city. Someone with an unguarded tongue really can't even wisely work their way through the natural rhythms of life. The foolish speaker has no spiritual navigational system. He may talk smoothly, yet without carefulness, and while doing so, he's telling a lot about himself. Proverbs has a lot to say about the foolish mouth, doesn't it? Let's go to other words from Solomon. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 18, a few pages back in your scriptures. Proverbs chapter 18. In verse 6, a fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. He provokes anger. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Go back a couple pages to chapter 15. In verse number 2, the tongue of the wise makes knowledgeable acceptable. Knowledge Acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. Chapter 14 and verse 3 says this. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will actually protect them. A couple more pages back for a final verse among many in the book of Proverbs to chapter 10 and verse 14. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Sounds very much like Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 15 as you journey way, your way back to our text this morning. Our way to do a personal check on the influence of our words is simple. Again, are your words endearing you more and more or less and less 
to the souls that live daily around you in your biblical responsibilities? Are your words endearing you to your spouse, your child? Do your words distance you or bring you closer to fellow saints that you worship with this morning? At work, have your words divided you from the friendship of your coworkers? Or are your words sources of healing and reconciliation? Verses 16 to 20 of chapter 10 teach us this. It teaches us, again, back to political leaders, how unwise they can be, and that a simple recognition of their lack of wisdom would keep us from being surprised at their actions and keep us faithful, living responsibly. Verses 16 and 17 teach us that these leaders can be overindulgent, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Verse 18 teaches us that, again, that they can be incapable. Verse 19 teaches us that they can actually be indifferent. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. They're enjoying all their niceties of life while they remain indifferent to the needs of the people for which they help govern. Verse 20 tells us that they can have little to no discernment. Little to no discernment. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. And in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound and the winged creature will make the matter known. This is a verse that speaks to the subordinates of those who work directly underneath main rulers or key rulers and, and even how they bite at the heels of flawed leadership. Even that is foolishness because what goes around comes around. The gossip and slander of even subordinates to flawed leadership will come back to bite them and to bring their own ruin. So there again, we think of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Don't forget how grace has changed us. I think of Moses' words in Exodus 22 and verse 28, where he said, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people that he's given you. I've told this to God's people here for years in relationship to living underneath flawed leadership. Again, I think the direct reference here is political, but it can be domestic, it can be vocational, it can even be in an academic setting. If you can't respect the person, respect the position. If you can't respect the person, respect the position. That position was not created by the person filling that position. It was divinely created. And God can supernaturally use any degree of flawed leadership to grow you by grace and to teach you to persevere well 
And by the way, don't ever forget, you might be the last and only light of the gospel to that flawed leadership that you live under. Maybe the Lord has you there for that purpose. So what's wisdom's response? Focus on what you would be like without God's grace in your life. Pray for flawed leadership. Don't let the foolishness of some political leaders keep you from living faithfully. And here are some additional wisdom reminders for the faithful believer beginning in chapter 11. We back off now from this particular matter of leadership and we transition into uh, some other wisdom musings, really. I think that's what Solomon's doing here. He, he, he's wafting from one morsel of wisdom in a particular circumstance to another. He's just musing. He says, it's always wise for you to remember to do good to those who are in need while you have the ability to do it. He's talking about ministering material benefit to those who are in physical need. Right? We know what the Apostle John says about that in his first letter. If you have the, abol- the ability, it's within your means to help those who don't have a need and you don't do it, that's a pretty devastating reality. It's a pretty telltale sign of your, of your character. Solomon says here, cast your bread on the surface of the waters for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight for you do not know the misfortune that may occur on earth. Give it while you've got it. Keep aware, and I think our church does a tremendous job with this. We heard it again this morning in the Bible study hour. Remaining aware in a disciple-making culture of people's material needs and standing ready to care for them if there's certainly genuine needs. I think we learn the same from verse number three. Nature has a way of caring for itself, doesn't it? What can we learn from nature? If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, whatever the tree falls, there it lies. No, no one ever has to go and remind nature to care for itself. It's organically put in motion by omnipotence to care for itself, and, and therefore, how much more we as a body of people in naturally and yet supernaturally caring for each other's needs. It's a great delight to me recently I got a note from an anonymous person expressing to me their, their great gratitude for someone in the church that had actually gone out and bought them a car. They couldn't get to work. It was a need. Just bought them a car. Recently, I received a note from another member of our church that said someone had anonymously given them a month's worth of groceries when they didn't have the money to make sure that there was food on the table for their family. Those stories effervesce from our flock. And I will tell you that in this time of a culture, the more we're together around the word, the more we become personally aware of each other's needs. And you can't really take care of a need unless you're aware of the need. 
But the more and more we're together around the word, there's a spiritual transparency coming here to Grace Church that's delightful. And when we become aware of a need while we're over the word, that need gets cared for by the grace of God through you. I am confident that there are thousands of other ways that you're ministering to each other that I may never know about in that way. I'm confident. Weekly, I'm hearing random realities of how you're doing that. And you're living wisely. That's what Solomon says here. Take care of the needs of others while you can. If nature does it so easily, how much more by grace should we? Verse 4. When you have the opportunity to do the right thing, do it. (laughs) Do it. Don't think about it. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. You can stand there all day long and watch the natural rhythms of creation and be paralyzed. You're not amazed. You're just idle. Solomon says here, it's wise for you. If you have the opportunity to do the right thing, then do it. I think James chapter 1 tells us this. Pure and undefiled religion is this, right? What's the wise thing to do for a believer in relationship to fatherless children and widows? Paul tells us the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you have the opportunity to take care of a widow indeed, do it. And we should. And by God's grace, again, you folks do. And I'm amazed at how God operate, God's grace operates through your lives in relationship to having opportunity to do the right thing and scripturally just doing it. Verses 5 and 6. He continues to muse about what wisdom is and what wisdom does. And he says here, be careful not to allow being amazed or being frustrated to make you idle in living the Christian life. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. That's amazement. That's amazement. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed. That can be frustration. Or whether both of them alike will be good. Living life again in the unknown. We're amazed at how God forms a little one in the womb of a mother. We're amazed by what we see occur in nature. We can be equally discouraged by plugging into life and then life not working out and and both frustration and amazement can cause us to stop and be idle. And Solomon says, I've learned, don't be idle. Stay active. Don't be overly amazed. Don't be overwhelmed by frustration. Allow God's grace to balance you out, to appreciate what should be amazed, to endure through inevitable frustrations while you continue to do good things. I've seen in my life particular believers that were amazed by a Bible doctrine and would allow that doctrine to be a pet doctrine, if you will, at the expense of 
understanding and applying other doctrines in the Bible. They were so amazed. I had a friend who wanted to be a screenplay writer for Hollywood folks that cast for movies and he was so overwhelmed by this passion to be a screenplay writer that it hurt his domestic relationships and actually kept him from having a consistent job. Too amazed. I knew one guy who loved the concept of missions so much and he wanted to be a missionary and all he could do was study about being a missionary and where I went to seminary, he was always to be found in the library reading missionary biographies and studying more and more and more about foreign missionaries and back home his wife kept having babies and, and their food bill kept getting larger and they got up to six children, a personal friend of mine, and he came to me one day and he said, I've been so overwhelmed with this good thing, so amazed by missions. I haven't even been able to keep a consistent job to feed the eight mouths in my home. How in the world am I going to get to the mission field? It's okay to be amazed, but guard yourself against imbalance of amazement. And the same is true for frustration. The agony of frustration can paralyze us. And certainly I understand that, you understand that in varying degrees, but we've got to keep moving. We've got to keep moving. And that's all by God's grace, and that's all that we do together. Wisdom responsibly leads us through all of these margins of mystery this way. The next time we're together, we're going to begin to look at chapter 11 and conclude with chapter 12. And, and these verses are going to teach us how wisdom is to be lived out in various stages of life. I think we saw this beginning in chapter 11 and verse 9, right? Chapter 11 and verse 7, excuse me, as Gordon read. The light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in all of them and let him remember the days of darkness for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be meaningless. He starts off here by telling us in any season of life, make sure because life goes quickly that you enjoy life's simple things. We talked about that, didn't we? Already by way of review in chapter nine, he's highlighting here again as if to really hammer home a truth that most people struggle with regardless of how frustrating or difficult or futile life might seem to you on a day-to-day -day basis, enjoy building your gingerbread houses. Bake the turkey just how you want it. If you want to set up your Christmas tree on Thanksgiving night, do it. If it's therapeutic for you to go out and rake leaves so there's not one morsel of a broken leaf on your lawn, you want your lawn to look like a green carpet during a fall windstorm, do it! Amen. 
you're on a diet and your wife's habit is to make the best pecan pie in human history and you want a piece, eat it. (laughs) I did. (laughs) That's what he's saying here. Enjoy the sun. Light's pleasant, isn't it? Light's pleasant. Get out and enjoy life's simple, God-given blessings. This is going to take us all the way through the first part of verse 12. Always remember to do what I've told you often my grandma told me to do is, Tim, stop and smell the spiritual roses that God has given to you. Divine gifts like the sun are to be enjoyed. Regardless of your current age, live each year to the fullest. And it says here, you may actually live a long time. So he's saying here all the way to the first part of verse 8, if you live a long time and then you enjoy simple blessings during that span of long years, you'll die with no regrets. And we see the balance here in verse 8 because while we have the opportunity to enjoy a lot of really good, simple, divine gifts, there's always going to be times of darkness, right? And it's almost like wisdom's telling us here, store up or pack your suitcase daily while you enjoy simple divine blessings because there's going to become times where you get off on an exit ramp of darkness and you might be on that side road for a while and you're going to have to live out of that suitcase. (laughs) So remember to enjoy simple divine pleasures along the way. You folks have been texting me constantly since we got into the latter part of chapter 9 or the middle part of chapter 9 about how you are obeying this enjoyment of simple things. And I want to let you know, I I think you are the most emotionally stable people I know. You, you continue to be a testimony to me of an undistracted, faithful group of people. There's a lot of things that can distract us. Right? You become a tremendous encouragement to me and a tremendous testimony to me on how to do the same. Right? Let's remain joyfully undistracted while we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator and continue to do good things together. All right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for these musings of wisdom. These simple reminders of a book that we've been journeying through for quite some time that help us live life with joy. And Lord, help us to use these thoughts on wisdom to constantly, throughout our day and throughout our week, simply wrestle ourselves back to living the Christian life with joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.